Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. I'm talking today to John Curtis. Professor Curtis is probably Britain's best-known polling expert, as well as overseeing the BBC's Election Day exit polls and providing analysis through the night and through the morning afterwards. He's Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University, Senior Research Fellow at NatSen, President of the British Polling Council, Chief Commentator on What UK Thinks and What Scotland Thinks, and has amassed a growing cult following on Twitter. Um, Professor Curtis, hello and thank you very much for talking to us. You're welcome. So let's start with the election, which is obviously on everyone's minds at the moment. I mean, one of your big jobs is putting together the BBC's exit poll or leading the team which does that. I mean, how do you go about doing that? Well, the truth is it's a very substantial um, um, enterprise, of course. It it, it requires um, a lot of interviewers to stand outside a lot of um, relatively... uh, uh, difficult church halls or school buildings or whatever to collect the data, to get the data into us and for us to analyse it. Um, but, I mean, leaving the logistics aside, the uh, essential method behind the exit poll is that um, doing an exit poll in the UK is particularly difficult because we don't have precinct level counts. So rather than us therefore knowing how each polling district and therefore how each polling station voted uh unusually for as compared to most countries um we take our ballot boxes we bring them together to a central point and we mix all the ballot papers together before they're counted that goes back to victorian concerns about secrecy um uh, but it does therefore mean unlike in most countries we don't have a precinct level count why does this matter well of course an exit poll by definition is undertaken amongst people as they leave the polling station. So in effect, therefore, any exit poll has to be undertaken in a sample of polling stations. But if you don't know how the polling stations voted last time, it's very difficult to be sure that the polling stations at which you are collecting the data Mm. are in fact representative of the country. Um, The truth is, therefore, we don't try. We don't even claim that it's representative. Rather, we rely on a um, different um, uh, approach. Um, and it's, it's reliant on the insight that, sure, um, the vote in um, St. Ives can be very different from that in Guildford, which may well be very diff- different from that 
um, in Leicester and South, which may indeed be very different from that in Edinburgh South. In other words, you know, the Conservative Labour vote varies very mm. substantially from one constituency to another. However, the change in uh, a party's share of the vote between any pair of elections varies a great deal less. And that therefore any selection of polling stations is more likely to give you a reasonably accurate estimate of the changes in party vote share than it is of the levels of party support. So it's it's a it's a feature, not a bug, that you're going to the same places year after year. And so so it's a feature because therefore, however, if we want to get an estimate of change, the only way we can do that is if we not only have an estimate of what's happened in that polling station this time around, but also last time around. How can we get that? You're right. The only way we can get that is wherever possible to go to the same polling stations as last time. That gives us in the end about 140 estimates of changes in party vote share, which we then statistically model in order to try to identify evidence of geographically systematic differences uh, out of which essentially emerges an estimate of the changes in vote share for all the parties in each of the 632 constituencies in Great Britain. And from that, you can begin to estimate who you think is more likely to win each of the individual constituencies. Which then boils down into 10 o'clock, David Dimbleby says, we believe, according to our great, our great experts... Yeah, and that, not just the BBC, by the yes, way. It's a shared yeah. enterprise these days. So um, ITV and Sky also take the same exit poll. It's jointly funded, it's jointly, it's jointly managed and organised. But presumably, back in 2015, there was a sort of terror, a slight element of terror, because you were saying something that was completely at odds with what had been the narrative the narrative of the polls leading up till then. <laughs> was, it, was it you who had to make that, that call of saying, yes, we're going to go? Well, uh, I mean, the, the answer, first of all, no, there wasn't any terror because you have to remember that this was not the first time that he actually, on virtually all of the recent um, uh, exit polls have come up with results that people found surprising. In 2005, we said that the Labour majority was going to be 66. Most people expected a majority of around 100. And indeed, one or two people did take to the airwaves in 2005, said, no, this can't possibly be right. No this one promised to eat These guys don't know what they're doing. Uh, no, in 2010, there was very sharp surprise because we said, no, we think the Democrats are going to win fewer seats than they did in 2000. And on that occasion, yes, a certain Ian Dale did promise to <laughs> run naked down Whitehall. And I think we're still waiting for that particular spectacle to happen. Um, but the, particularly the 2010 experience and you know, everybody who was involved in 2015 was involved in 2010 meant that therefore, in a sense, we were battle hardened. We, you know, we spent most of 2010 interrogating the data, you know, is there any possible way we can see in which this might be wrong? The answer was no. And in, again, in 2015, in we spent a lot of time interrogating data, but certainly the, you know, the answer is no. And at the end of the day, um, you have to go with the data. All right. Uh, so whatever we do, we will be able to show you uh, the, 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 the you know, we, we will know what the data is. We can tell you how we model the data, etc., etc. And to that extent, at least, you know, the, the, the process is transparent and we will report the data as they are. Um, so therefore, yes, of course, we were we were aware that we were telling people that um, I mean, I mean, it's always difficult for us because, you know, we've got a good idea for a long time beforehand what we're going to say and everybody else comes to surprise. I, I never regarded as that. Um, 
completely surprising. I would have said, you know, we were actually saying Tory 316 rather than Tory 331. And I just simply regard it as being towards the outside end of the range of the mm. possible, right? Rather than this is beyond belief. Um, uh, and, you know, certainly, you know, I had more than one conversation with people saying, you know what, there are two things that are going to be crucial in terms of whether the polls are right. And, and people's expectations in terms of seats. Number one was, well, you know, there is, a, there is a historical record of the polls tending to underestimate the Tories and overestimating Labour. The question is, is it going to be a small error this time or a bigger one? And the second crucial thing that we knew would make a difference is whether or not the Conservatives did particularly well in constituencies they were defending for the first time, having gained them in 2010. There's a long-standing historical pattern that says in those circumstances the defending party tends to do relatively well. The question was, but how much would it matter? And again, the second factor would only matter if the Tories were mm. doing relatively well. So we knew what the sources of uncertainty were, and if you took those sources of uncertainty, you wouldn't have regarded 316 as, as, as in any sense uh, uh, beyond belief. Um, and so to that extent, at least, now perhaps we weren't quite surprised everybody else. Um, but sure, you know, we just, you just have to go with the results. And, you know, if at the end of the day it's wrong, you just say, well, you know, we, we applied the method, we've described the method, we've justified the method, this is how we got there. Sorry, mm. so that's, that's what sometimes happens to research. Um, but, you know, as it happened, it wasn't too far out. But, the, but then you, you have this sort of unique dual role that, after spending months organising this this campaign, and then having, or in the case of this election, weeks, <laughs> in the case of this election, weeks, uh, I mean, getting everything together, making sure people are in the right places, and then on the day, presumably, making sure. Well, that, I don't, you know, yeah. look. In fairness, look, 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 look. there are others who. In, in, in terms of getting people in the right, you know, Ipsos Mori and GFK are responsible for all of this. They are, you know, are responsible for organising the interviewers, for getting the data to us. They, all, uh, Roger right. Mortimer, and Ipsos Mori, plays quite a crucial role. I mean, sometimes we have to go to new places. Roger plays a crucial crucial role in doing the research that's required to identify uh, uh, new polling stations, etc. There's a lot, a lot of whole, um, you know, logistical interviewing, getting the data, which, you know, yeah. which, which uh, those organisations entirely take the credit for. Um, we, in the end, basically take responsibility for the original research design and we take responsibility for taking their data and then, you know, analysing it and interpreting it. And yes, eventually making it, but again, in consultation, mm. because um, there's, a, there's a team that works with me, but then you know, Colin Runnings for ITN and Mike Thrasher um, for Sky um, uh, also uh, represent their organisation's interests. They are around at the mm. exit poll. And you know, I had to give them their due. I mean, they both of them have defended both the 2010 and the 2015 exit poll robustly. They're consulted, they know how we got there. And you know, each occasion so they said, "Yeah, this do, do, we're all absolutely in agreement." So, is there is there, is there a sort of uh, is there a conference call? No, 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 no. Everybody, so there, there is or, a there, there is a secret location in which this takes place, um, um, and it's kept secret. There are a very small number of people who are involved, and who therefore a very small number of people who know anything until uh, shortly before ten o'clock. But Colin and Michael are there, and then you all disperse, and then you disperse to, to your separate studios. Yeah, correct. Correct, absolutely. Yeah. And then, then of course, uh, as if that wasn't all exhausting enough, you then have to spend the in, pretty much the entire night on on air. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I'm not, I'm not on air, but I'm sure we're we're we're, we're analysing the results as they come in, and obviously we're kind of partly got our fingers crossed, saying it's the exit poll right. And you know, the way the BBC in particular does things, it does use the exit poll quite strongly as a benchmark uh, to help 
guide people through the early results. And in a sense, in, in one sense, it doesn't matter if the exit poll is wrong, because um, if indeed um, that it soon becomes apparent, because we will say to people, well, look, if the exit poll is right, this is what you expect in Sunderland South. And then all of a sudden, it's not that in Sunderland South. And then you get three or four or five of them, all of them mm-hmm. saying the exit poll is wrong for a particular party in a certain direction. You'll know pretty rapidly that therefore mm-hmm. things have adjusted. And I, you know, that, that the point about an exit poll at the end of the day, I mean, okay, it's a bit of fun for people to kind of say, well, you know, will these guys get egg on their face? But in the end, the real point of it is that you know, all you otherwise get is, you know, early results. Well, hang on, what does this mean? What are the implications? Is this a surprise? What might, what does or does this not change your expectations? Which we, which we had in the EU referendum where everyone's kind of quite confused. Sure. The, the exit poll provides a benchmark uh, and it provides a benchmark for interpreting and understanding the early results so that people can say, well, you know, if the results are in line with the exit poll, oh, well, so we must be heading for something like that result. May not be exactly that. Um, but if it's consistently wrong, okay, now actually it's going to be rather more like this. And that at the end of the day's value is, is to help the audience to understand what that potential cacophony of early mm. results might actually mean. Sure. But um, in terms of the night itself, I mean, are you generally sustained by adrenaline, boiled sweets, fast food? Yeah, yeah. I'm just lucky. I'm t- I can just keep going. I mean, uh, the, the only thing is don't ask me to do something you haven't asked me to do before the, the previous day. So I can operate on tram lines. But like anybody, when you get become sleep deprived, you cannot think laterally. So if somebody says, if somebody, you know, says to me, um, you know, oh, can you just do a quick thing for or, or can, today program? Or, uh, well, no, that, that's fine. If, I, if, 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 you know, if I'm talking about what I've been thinking about all night, that's fine. Now, if somebody says to me, oh, no, if somebody has said to me, oh, I want you to write 500 words about X, and then they say to me at five, 2 o'clock on Friday, I know you want 500 words on Y, the answer is no. And, you know, if you throw something at me that I've not thought about, then, you know, I won't, I won't get there. Okay, so going back to the beginning, I mean, presumably you didn't uh, grow up dreaming of becoming the nation's uh, preeminent pollster. No, you, of course not. Yeah, you, you, you weren't sort of sitting there in kindergarten taking, taking surveys of your classmates. No. So, so, so how, did, how did you get into it? How did this, well, this all start? Well, um, having said I, did, whenever I wasn't doing surveys in kindergarten, um, for, you know, for reasons I do not understand, I did become interested in elections at a relatively early age and I know my first political memory is the death of Hugh Gateskill in 1963 and I remember being allowed by my parents in 1964 to stay up somewhat later than I was then what would be a 10 11 year old would normally be allowed to stay up in the in the early 1960s and um, uh, watched the beginning of the election programme. And I well remember the following day, I think my, I was out with my mother, um, but listening on the radio, because the fact is very close and we weren't quite sure for a while that Howard Wilson was going to get a majority or not. Uh, so don't ask me why, but I was, I was kind of following then. Um, you know, thereafter, and I was certainly you know, reading about the subject, you know, uh, as a rather older teenager. Um, I mean, I then, you know, classic thing, went to Oxford, did PPE, um, so one of, one of the, the, cur- the curse of the governing class. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I accept that particular cross. But then uh, you know, I decided that I wanted to do postgraduate work. And who do I do postgraduate work? Well, I wanted to do work about elections. And I go and do postgraduate work with David Butler, who, of course, was uh, from you know, the very first election television in the you know, early 1950s, together with Bob McKenzie, the person 
who are the two people who between them as it were were the were the sophologists of their day and you know they really did drive the program in a way that you know we in a sense don't have to it's uh, i think they I mean, they were establishing it as a thing. well and also but you just have to realize you know without the support of the graphics and the computer mm. technology i mean they really were having to sustain the program in a quite extraordinary way if you go watch some of the early ones you kind of go my god you know that really was a lot of work, a lot of work of effort and sustained on-air presence anyway um so um so you know there, you know my, was you know was my my, my phd um, supervisor I was I I would I was taught computing by Clive Payne, who was like David Butler at Nuffield College in Oxford, and Clive had been doing the forecast, the seat forecast on the beta for using a variety of different methods for the BBC since I think the nineteen since nineteen seventy. So I, I was there with the two, two two of the people who were very heavily involved. And I am um, as a result of you know that and my interest in 1979, I was sitting in the BBC election night studio, sitting behind David Butler with a programmable calculator, being a kind of research assistant, right? And then after that, because um, that, that was David's last election on television, um, uh, Clive, you know, we were then just getting to the age of the PC, all right? And in 19. 81 I think it was the 1981 London elections uh, either 81 or 82 I think it's 1981 um, we literally uh, Clive persuaded the BBC that actually now we could do instant uh, collection and analysis of election results by computer because when David Butler was doing it he was doing it with slide rules okay and we took a research machines 380z into the BBC <laughs> studio and Clive programmed it in BASIC, and he and I basically, very simple, you know, taking the GLC results, adding them up, comparing them with the last uh, general election, because the GLC constituencies and um, parliamentary constituencies aligned, and doing some very, very simple analysis. But we, we therefore started, and then uh, thereafter, after that, we persuaded the BBC in 1983, I mean, in fact, you know, using uh, Oxford's computing service and using acoustic couplers and all the rest of it, um, that again, we could do an instant analysis of the results. So that gave me my entree. So I spent, you know, I spent most, a, a large number of elections working on the production side, providing analysis. Um, but, you know, they're also at the same time, occasionally doing the odd bits of pieces. I mean, I was doing the kind of Today programme in the 1980s with uh brian hanrahan not hanrahan um whatever he was called redhead redhead yeah um and um but um uh, just uh, uh, you know and you know i've worked uh, you know i mean uh, ivory cruz to the bbc to anthony king. i mean anthony king um was superb um uh, because you know he had this incredible urbane um, felicity you know he never ever stumbled over his words he always found the right word and equally you know you could feed him analysis he would grasp it instantly so he used to do a lot I, 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 I worked with him at the telegraph and he was amazing in his ability just to yeah right so 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 i you know i did i did you know so i did a lot of stuff you know working on the production side you know supporting people etc um and it's only kind of more recently that they've kind of said, oh, well, why don't we shove him on air? But, you know, I've, I've kind of done lots of on-air stuff over many years for a whole variety of yeah. organisations. And But what was things. it about, actually, sort of the, the, the polling and the, the sort of the, the sophology, which was the, the, the passion? Because I imagine it's quite like being, a, being, a, a fo being interested in football and, but, and choosing to become a referee. It's, it's quite rare to find people who, who are passionate about politics, but not passionate about 
one particular side or the other. Maybe I've, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 it depends. I, if you work, it depends what circles you um, you um, you circulate in. I, I, my experience, for example, of civil servants is that they're often deeply interested in the politics of their country or of their government, but are equally capable of serving whoever happens to mm. be their political masters. Indeed. Uh, arguably, that's the, na the, the the nature of their job. No, I mean no, the, the point is you can you can decide that you know if just decide your role. I mean you know um, some of us uh, uh, try to offer um, uh, some uh, you know a kind of pro bono public eye service rather than one that's particularly partisan. Um, um, mm. It's also probably a certain amount of temperament, you know, in the sense of you know do I necessarily think that any particular party or body of peoples or ideology necessarily have the answer to the world's problems? No. Um, am I somebody who prefer, who thinks that it's much more important to understand the world as it is rather than to claim that the world is like I would like it to be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that just happens to be... And also, also not believing that you have a superior storehouse of knowledge that if only your beliefs and principles could no, be applied. Absolutely. No, 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 no. And, you know, again, you know, I mean, you know, uh, you know what, what I have always ever done... Um, you know, on the cephalogical side, is done with the help and support of other people. And you know, I mean, there's about there's about four or five very clever people who are, uh, you know, these days tending to t tending to do most of the programming. And you know, we have long and learned conversations about how to do things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they will say to me, you know, what about this? What about that? Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, sure, it's it's a, and you know, you 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 absolutely crucial. You've got to listen to what other people tell you. And, but you're, you don't just do political polling, do you? You've also been very heavily involved in the British Social Attitudes Survey. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, again, it goes back to 1983. I mean, in 1983, um, again, I was still hanging around Oxford at that point as a research fellow. And the people, there was a group of people in Oxford who were eventually led by Anthony Heath who wanted to um, bid to do the academic election study in 1983. Again, we come back to Clive Payne. Clive Payne gave us one crucial piece of advice. He said, contact Roger Jow, who ran NUTSEN, uh, uh, who was then called Social Community Planning Research, NUTSEN Social Research these days. Roger was a brilliant academic entrepreneur, uh, founded his own company as an educational charity, very rapidly got um, a high reputation for doing you know, public policy related research. And by 1983, He'd, he'd had this idea and he'd got the Nuffield Foundation to fund it, which was to, at that point, government, it's less true now, at that point, government really didn't ever do research into attitudes. Um, um, it was felt, you know, that was a, a Rubicon that should not be crossed in a democratic society. And Roger's view is like, you know, we get all these episodic opinion polls, we should have, you know, some really serious, high quality uh, survey work that's done over time. And, um, and what have been the findings? Because you said this data wasn't available to government. So what's... what's oh, what did we find out? Yeah. Oh, well, we found... <laughs> obviously... I mean, it, we're, it, we're all it, racists. It, we're not racists. It, 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 it's, a, it's a very multi-hydra-headed project. But let me give you two or three headlines in mm. terms of the long-term data. The first is that we have become a much more socially liberal society. And that's particularly true with respect to same-sex relationships, 
which in the 1980s, the clear majority of the population thought were wrong. And now most people say, what the hell's the argument about? And that's a very substantial, gradual, persistent social change, really starting from about the late 80s, after the height of the AIDS um, uh, mm. con uh, concern and its link with HIV and with the homosexual community. Um, and it very much changed. But it's part of a broader pattern whereby we've become a more socially liberal society. That's probably the biggest long, long run continuous secular trend uh, that we've seen. Um, the second thing we've picked up more, more recently is that as a society, we've become less uh, supportive of welfare, particularly welfare for those of working age, though not necessarily for pensioners. The third thing that we picked up was um, that uh, actually during the uh, 80s and 90s, the public were becoming increasingly concerned about the state of public services, less concerned about the level of taxation. And we were arguing long before the 1997 general election that actually um, uh, the Labour Party was wrong and that um, actually um, uh, people weren't wanting them to keep the Tory uh, platform on taxation um, and that they should forget what they thought the lesson of 1992 was. Um, it took the Labour Party two years in government to realise that actually we were right and they were wrong. Um, but then more, the more broader point about that is that actually then what we've been able to demonstrate, well, two things. One is that attitudes towards things like tax levels of taxation and spending are basically counter-cyclical. So if a government comes in and it tries to uh, reduce public spending um, and re reduce taxation, after a while, people will get concerned about the state of public services. If a government conversely increases public spending and increases taxation, after a while, they'll get concerned about the increase of taxation. So insofar as there are lots of ideologues out mm -hmm. there who think the state should be this proportion of GDP they're all wrong because the public's view is counter cyclical to the recent experience. Right? And it's basically impossible to satisfy the public. But the other thing, however, about New Labour is one of the things we argued was that actually um, New Labour didn't just simply bring the Labour Party in line with the electorate, it actually moved the electorate to the right. And, uh, so that was, that's what I was going to ask. Does, does this tend to follow government or, or push government? Well, the point is, it, point is it varies. On some things, you know, so, so on something like um, the social liberalism on with respect mm. to same-set relationships. Here is a social change, which actually politicians, if, if you think of it a bit like a bit like a bit like a wave, the politicians got their surfboard uh, onto the wave at roughly the right time. Uh, um, so, uh, same uh, civil partnerships were introduced at more or less the point at which the balance of opinion became 50-50. And by the time we got to the introduction of um, uh, same-sex marriages, public opinion had just kind of, you know, completely moved in the opposite direction. So there's an area of a social, long-term social change, nothing to do with politicians. The, so, the other two, you know, so, so, so the counter-cyclical point is an example whereby basically, um, you know, to use the, the, the language of the, the American political scientist, Chris Falazin, who's done a lot of work in this area, uh, the public opinion tends to be thermostatic, all right? It basically reacts, to, it, it, it tries to keep uh, pub, uh, the, the balance between spending and, and expenditure at a particular point, but governments tend to either overshoot or undershoot. Um, the third point is an example of where actually, in the case of Blair, public opinion follows mm. a change in the party's position. But of course, the change in Labour's position in the late 90s was unusually sharp and you know had and therefore it's rather unusual to see it having quite that effect. And you mentioned that there's a backlash when 
there's been too much of a focus on saving money and lowering taxes. I mean, yes. are you picking that up in the in the data at the moment? Are people starting to say, well, we've had 10 years of austerity? Well, and- the, the 2016 data is not yet published, but you can see if you look at what we were saying in 2015 that maybe, maybe, perhaps there are, it's beginning to pick up, although there is no doubt that it's been relatively slow to pick up uh, at this time. Um, though, of course, equally, um, the government has not been as successful in curbing public expenditure as it originally anticipated. And you're also involved in the Scottish Social Attitude Survey Correct. Uh, and professor at Strathclyde University and yes. did an awful lot of uh, commentary and analysis around the Scottish referendum. I mean, yes. are there signs that the, the Scottish character and Scottish values are really that different from no. the English? No. The thing that's different about Scotland is that it's Scottish. Sounds daft, <laughs> it sounds daft, but it's crucial, all right? In the sense that the thing that above all distinguishes Scotland, public opinion and attitudes and affections in Scotland from those in England, is that you've got a population that predominantly feels Scottish, and most people feel Scottish to a greater extent than they do British, or at least they're, they're, uh, at, uh, at the most they're more equal. Yeah. So the identity is different. Um, now, Scotland is somewhat more left-wing than England, but it's never if you so if you ask questions that we do on a regular basis about you know you know you know is the gap between rich and poor too too uh, you know too big or do ordinary people get their fair share of the nation's wealth or should the government do more to try to equalise incomes, you know people in Scot you might get you know five six seven percent more people in Scotland saying you know giving you the left wing response than is the case south of the border, but it's never been much more than of that order and that it's certainly never been of. The size you might expect by simply looking at the difference between conservative support on the two sides of the border and going, hang on, these must be two different countries. All right? So you need to overlay the identity points. Well, it's not just identity, it's also people's perceptions of the Conservative Party north of the border, at least until relatively recently, as a party that basically managed to crucify itself by tarnishing it as be allowing itself to be tarnished as being an English party. That, but that's not that's not a terribly good place to be if you are um, uh, trying to fight win, win elections in a society where most people feel Scottish. Yes, um, that's fair enough. And I mean, what I mean, do you have a sort of gut feeling about a second independence referendum? Yeah, I think it's impossible for anybody to be sure what would happen if it happens anytime soon. Um, and I mean, th- you know, things have not th- things do not pan out necessarily as any politician would like to do. I mean, there, there are two point two points you have to bear in mind. The first is that um, the consequence of holding the first independence referendum was to turn Scotland into the most problematic member of the United Kingdom. Um, the independent side won the referendum campaign. They just didn't manage to win it well enough to win mm. the referendum. Uh, but it's now clear the long-term legacy is that we now have something like 45% support for independence in Scotland, whereas beforehand it was between a quarter and a third. Um, the second point to make, however, is that uh, contrary to the SNP's expectations, the divergent Brexit vote has not shifted the balance of public opinion north of the border partly because the Brexit vote cuts across people's views about independence. There's a minority of people who voted um, leave, uh, who voted yes, and equally a lot of the people who voted remain, who voted no, aren't aren't that keen on the European Union. And they're certainly keener on the UK. But that said, it still means, therefore, we're talking about a society which is pretty evenly divided on the issue of independence. And depending on when it's held and what circumstances in which it's held and whether or not the SNP comes up with a different argument about the economics of independence than they came up with uh, two and a half years ago. Um, but I don't think any, I, I, I mean, the, the truth is, insofar as we are probably likely to get a second referendum at some point of some kind in the not too distant future, both sides are playing poker. Neither side can be sure and neither side can be sure who's got the ace of spades. 
And um, similarly views on Europe, presumably you've been following... Oh, yeah, yeah, and I'm doing a lot of work on Brexit at the moment. I mean, attitudes toward, I mean, basically, we remain divided as a 50-50 society on the merits of leaving um, or remaining. Uh, public opinion has not shifted since last year. Um, and um, we, whether it, whether it will shift, we will, we will have to see. Um, inevitably, what is now the case is that, you know, pe pe some people are out there saying, oh, well, you know, when eventually it uh, becomes clear that... Um, uh, leaving is a bad idea, and we and the UK economy suffers. People will 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 see the light of day. Well, not necessarily, because people may say, "Well, you know, the way the EU the EU has treated us in the Brexit negotiations just goes to show why it's a bad idea being inside the organisation in the first place." In other words, people will interpret what happens in the next two years through the party line mm. side lens of the decision they made on uh, June the twenty third, um, uh, twenty sixteen, and there's no guarantee as to which way. Went. But so far, opinion has just not. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. To sort of close with i'd like to just ask some sort of more general questions about polling because mm -hmm. obviously the the polling industry has not your exit poll apart has not been in the, had the best reputation recently in terms of in terms of hitting the mark is that because the methods were wrong or is that because people are getting harder to track down and survey well it's certainly true that people are getting harder a bit more difficult to track down and survey that war that's true of all um, polling and survey research, even the high-end stuff, which I mostly spend my my time doing. You know. And by high-end, you mean actually talking, think, actually finding think, people and talking to yeah, them. Yeah, think, think like the British Social Attitude Survey, where you know people are chosen at random, and we go and knock on their doors. You know, when I first started in this trade in the nineteen eighties, you you were aiming for a seventy percent response rate. If you now get above fifty percent, you breathe a sigh of relief. So it undoubtedly got more difficult, and therefore there's a greater risk that. Uh, the people that you get are not necessarily uh, representative. That's, I mean, the, the principal conclusion from the inquiry into what happened in 2015 is that essentially, I mean, it's long been the case that the polling industry ha has accepted 
that you know whatever how it's done over the internet the phone or whatever that they, they acquire the samples that they acquire are not necessarily representative however the assumption upon which they operate is that well by weighting our data by trying to take into account what people say about turn etc etc we can make our sample look representative in the, in the end, if you actually look at the data um, in 2015, what you discover is that the not only was it true, um, it wasn't the, the polls before anybody tried to wait or uh, whatever them actually had Conin Lab at 50-50 each, i.e. even Stevens. And that's what they ended up saying when they had gone through all their various methodological efforts. So the truth is, therefore, the assumption that you could turn potentially representative samples into representative ones, kind of that was questioned. Now, um, so it's an issue of sampling, which is difficult to resolve. Um, uh, some of the companies, you know, for example, YouGov have certainly kind of said, well, actually, we realise that one of the lessons is you've got to do a better job of getting hold of people who aren't necessarily going to vote, because if you don't estimate the differentials in turnout correctly, that can throw you astray, not least because younger voters tend to be more likely to vote Labour. Um, uh, but of course, inevitably, um, you know, both the EU referendum and the now this election have occurred perhaps rather more rapidly than the polling industry was anticipating. And therefore, you know, uh, you know, changes have been made, but whether or not they have made all the changes that be required, you know, I mean, to be honest, it remains to be seen. It's a, I think, as they like to say in management speak, it's a program of continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that said, on the EU referendum, the polls were, I mean, people say the polls got it wrong, but on that, I think that's just too simple a headline. Um, actually, um, for example, the average of the polls done over the internet was 50-50 all the way from September 2015. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind that, uh, that actually a majority of the opinion polls conducted during the four weeks of PERDA had leave ahead. And that even in the final polls, which were people looked at, there were kind of two polls that had leave ahead. So uh, the, and I, 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 one of those great is of, of history is it, perhaps if the referendum had been on June the 16th, when the opinion polls had clearly uh, identified a swing towards leave, and Leave had won, the polls would have been greeted as great uh, mm -hmm. uh, harbingers of the truth. Uh, now, they moved back on June the 23rd, and that may have been you know, something version or whatever. Also, however, what you then discover is that actually, again, if you take the unweighted data in the, in the referendum polls, they actually were pointing towards 50-50. They ended up with an average of about 52-48 because of their attempts to weight and filter the data. Now, the difficulty here was they were trying to estimate something where the where the, the social division um, and the ideological division was very different from that in a general election. The referendum was not an argument between left and right. It was not an argument about the size of the state. It, uh, it was an argument between social liberals and social conservatives. It was an argument between those with university degrees and those without. And this meant, therefore, you were trying to estimate something and needing to acquire a, a, a sample that was rather different than you, you might need to get a general election right. So that's very particularly so generous. But actually, the polls, given the difficulties, in the referendum went so bad. What is true, there was an awful lot of selective perception. An awful lot of the commentariat wanted Remain to, to, to win, believed Remain would win, and therefore tended to focus on the polls that told them what they hoped would be true. But a cool look at the evidence from the beginning, and this is the advice I certainly gave anybody who asked me, is if you don't have a plan for plan B, i.e. leave winning, you are a fool. Cool. And I mean, one of the remarkable things about 
the polling industry, I mean, just even just during the decade or so I've been working in politics, is how much it's grown. I mean, polling yes. and market research, you know, these sort of places like YouGov and Populous and Ipsos Murray installation becoming sort of these vast multi-million pound enterprises. And, I mean, well, they you, vary. They vary a great deal in size, but yeah. But I mean, do they have, I mean, Nadeem Zahawi, who, who co-founded YouGov, and one, he gave a speech a while back in which he said that, you know, politicians used to sip polling data like fine wine. Every so often they just check that things were going OK. And now they, they basically swig it from the bottle. Every, you know, every single day you get your, you, you get your report, you, you dive into the data. And then your, your tactic of, of political campaigning is to feed back to people what your polling data and your focus groups and all the rest of it have told them they want to hear. Um, I, frankly, I disagree. Um, uh, let, me get, let me go back to you, the example of the late 90s. We consistently said to people on British Social Attitudes, look, what people are concerned about is um, a, a, a declining public services in their view, not taxation. I can well remember Donald Dewar standing up in the Playfair Library in Edinburgh when I was present, saying, I know these people from British Social Attitudes tell me that people... Um, uh, are more concerned about public service than about taxation. I frankly don't believe them. I think they are lying or telling people what they think is the socially acceptable answer. And my experience is very much that um, politicians are inclined to look for the evidence that fits their worldview. And that certainly um, you know, there are numerous aspects about new Labour. And, and in the end of the day, you know, I mean, the, the, the view that Tony Blair, who in a sense was meant to be Mr. Focus Group, was somebody who was simply mouthing what the focus groups want. I mean, I, I, I trust that everybody now realises this is wrong. You know, as became much more evident in Tony Blair's later career, and it's clearly very evident now. And so this is not a criticism, but Tony Blair is an ideologue. All right. He is somebody who believes in the relatively centrist definition of new labor that he was articulating. He wasn't just doing it because this was the only darned way he could get elected. He felt that was the path the country should follow. All right. And to that extent, at least, therefore, He's nothing to do with focus groups. Well, of course, focus groups can give you an idea perhaps of how to sell the message, but the, but the message that you wish to sell has usually been determined in advance. It's not, been, it's not that politicians suddenly say to pollsters, oh, right, oh, actually, the public don't want X, they want Y. So it's not, it's not that, they, that they've been presented with 200 separate adjectives to describe Theresa May, it's that they, they know strong and stable works, but it also fits who... Who she is, or what she wants to. Play. Well, look, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, you, know it, you, you don't have to be the world's greatest sophologist to realise that you know uh, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't seem to be terribly popular, <laughs> and that Theresa May is uh, so far managed to present herself as a relatively competent politician, um, um, and you know, you, you, you can certainly, uh, but you know, sorry, to that extent at least, what the Conservatives are doing informed by opinion polls, and certainly one could argue. Um, you know, the Prime Minister has decided to take an enormous punt on, on the opinion polls because, you know, there was no other evidence out there that would tell her that holding a general, early general election might hold a reasonable prospect of winning, winning a, a, a landslide majority. Um, she could, after all, have waited for the local elections on, on, uh, uh, on, on May the 3rd, which, after all, is what um, Margaret Thatcher did in 1983 and 1987. Um, but she's gone for it. I mean, in a sense, the, this general election is the biggest punt on polling that arguably um, any prime minister has made probably at least 
since Howard Wilson in 1970. Not perhaps a happy precedent, but maybe history won't repeat itself. But but your your view generally would be that more the more we know about the voters, the better. That we, it... oh, look, 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 I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, I mean, two, uh, two things. I mean, it clear. I mean, so far as public policy is concerned, it clearly is better. Um, other things being equal, if public policy is is framed with an understanding of public attitudes. It doesn't mean to say you have to do what the public currently want, but you need to understand, not least because if you're going to do something which actually public opinion says is unpopular, you know you've got a job of persuasion to do, all right? Or you need to understand that actually implementing this policy, you may well suffer a public reaction. Are you ready for that? Are you willing to do it? Um, and secondly, crucially, evaluating the consequences of public policy. You know, if a public, if a government changes something, are people happy or not? Do they think it's a good idea or not? Has public opinion shifted as a result of the way that we expected? You know, that's pretty crucial. So that's one thing. It, it should it both help to inform the development and the evaluation of the success of public policy. So, you know, for example, one obvious area on the example. You now, if you introduce a ban on smoking in public places, it's one of those things that only is going to work if you don't have to enforce it if it just becomes accepted as a social moray. Mm. So you need to understand where the public is at, and you certainly need to evaluate afterwards what's the consequence of changing the law. Um, so, that, so, that, so that's one. The second thing, it seems to me, is that society has a right to have a mirror to itself. And that every, anybody and everybody has evidence to, you know, evident information collected as dispassionately and scientifically as possible, albeit with all the limitations we know with polling and sur uh, survey work, so that people, there, there is independent evidence out there about what public think and maybe why they think about it and who thinks and who doesn't think about it. Now, one of my you know, concerns about um, you know, attempts to ban public opinion polls is that essentially, well, you know, why... Uh, that, that just simply gives politicians to make assertions, which they tend to do anyway, which is, I believe that what the public wants is X. Really? Where's the evidence? And we should be able to challenge claims that politicians and policymakers make in that respect, with respect to evidence. Otherwise, who knows? Well, one final question. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm sure you're aware of this. You've got something of a, a cult following online. Um, that uh, there, there's a Twitter account uh, which monitors whether monitors your television. I think, it, I think I think that's a product of the Tuesday after Easter when, uh, shall we say, I've I was in it, uh, summoned to a television studio and it took a long time to escape. But yes, mm -hmm. but I mean, I, I mean, is that something that you're sort of aware of or pleased with or, or surprised by? Um, well, I mean, look, you know, people stop me in the street and say, "Are you X or Y?" Um, I'm rather used to it. Um, but to be honest, this is not about me. And, you know, it's okay. If, 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 I mean, you know, obviously, if you are, I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, I mean, obviously, if you're going to, if you on either on radio or television, you know, if you're going to communicate effectively, you, you know, you have to be a bit of an actor, not in the sense of, you know, being pretend, but that, you know, lines delivered dramatically are rather more likely to reach attention, right? Okay. But I, I mean, you know, if, if there's anything that simply pleases me, it's simply that quite often people come up to me and say, you know, carry on with what you're doing. You know, we find it really interesting, really valuable, et cetera, et cetera. Which if, that, if what I do for whatever reason, it helps people to understand what is going on, then sure, that's all I'm trying to achieve. I'm not trying to sell John Curtis. Um, I'm 
simply as a humble uh, uh, sophologist um, saying, look, you know, who perhaps has got a particular ability to look at a table of numbers and to find a narrative out of it. I guess if, I, if I've got a skill, that's it. And that, that telling that narrative helps people to understand the complex, difficult, challenging world in which we live. Fine, I'm happy. That, that's all I'm trying to do. Wonderful. Professor Curtis, thank you very much. You're welcome, it's fine.